And welcome everybody to another episode of the Animaniacast. And welcome everybody once again to the Animaniacast. This, of course, is the podcast that's dedicated to the animated television series Animaniacs, as well as other shows within the Rugerverse such as Tiny Toon Adventures, Pinky in the Brain, and, of course, Freakazoid. And boy, oh boy, what a time at WonderCon we had. Uh, It's it's a week later, and I'm still coming down. Uh, I am Joey. Uh, Nathan and Kelly are not here with me today, because I'm going to be sharing a special uh, clip or selection or audio recording. Yeah, that's the word for it. From WonderCon, this is a panel uh, called, I believe it was called How to Write for Animation, and it had Mark Evanier uh, as the head uh, panelist, and uh, along with him were Tom Ruger and Paul Rugg, a couple of people that you probably know from being on here uh, quite often, and who had a very fun time with me. Uh, over at WonderCon, uh, we have a couple more panels that I am really hoping that we'll be able to share with you in the near future. We had two other panels over at WonderCon that were both very successful. One of them was about Animaniacs, and the other one was about Freakazoid. And, well, I, I was told that we might be able to get some uh, some of that footage, so... We'll see. We'll see what the future holds for that. And I really am crossing my fingers that we'll be able to share that with you in the next few weeks. So look forward to that. But in the meantime, here is this panel. And this is really specifically for anybody who is interested in animation writing and just honestly, just writing in general. How do you get started? How did these gentlemen uh, I'll get going and uh, some of the backstories with uh, their writing process. Well, we're going to find out. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this panel about how to write in animation. When I do these panels about how to write for animation, I usually start by polling the room and asking, would you like us to talk mostly about how to get a job in the business or would you like us to talk mostly about how to write a script? Um, it always comes out 50-50. Let's try it for just fun here. How many prefer us to emphasize how to write a script? How many prefer us to emphasize how to get a job in the business? 50-50, thank you. <laughs> we'll try to cover both topics somewhat. Uh, briefly, I'm going to ask these gentlemen to... We, we, you could not get two better people for this panel than these guys here. That's and, very and, true. And if you don't if you, if you know why that is, I'm going to have them run through a list of their credits. Paul, would uh, would you list shows that, that where people saw your work? Yes. And Paul is also an actor who has been heard on many of his shows. Paul, you've done some voice work on very little occasionally, or your family has. Yes, my family. Yes, there are some Luke. Yes. Yes. Okay. Paul, run down a list for these. Uh, let me see. My first job ever was a show called Animaniacs, and uh, that was kind of unfortunately it didn't get much better. But uh, no. Um, <laughs> Uh, Animaniacs, a show called Freakazoid, Pinky in the Brain, um, uh, uh, my word, other things. 
uh, Kung Fu Panda. I developed uh, Penguins Madagascar for Nickelodeon and um, Toonsylvania for just stuff. Just things. Look them up. You'll find them. Is there anyone in this room who didn't love one of those shows? Okay. <laughs> At least one. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. I'll go back a little further. People are uh, Genesis. <laughs> I wrote, uh, when, when Mark Evanier was working on Scooby, I, I started work at Hanna-Barbera as, as an assistant animator, but I then went to Filmation where I wrote uh, like things like Tarzan and Zorro and The Lone Ranger and a show called Black Star. And then I went back to Hanna-Barbera where I worked on uh, uh, Scooby-Doo. Mark worked on Scooby-Doo as well. Uh, I became a story editor first on Scooby-Doo, and then I, I did Pound Puppies, and then I did a pup named Scooby-Doo, which landed me the gig where I, I met Paul, which was uh, over, I did Tiny Toons, and then I did uh, Animaniacs, and Paul was one of the key creator players of that series. Uh, then we did Freakazoid, uh, Hysteria, uh, Pinky and the Brain, Road Rovers, and we did, uh, we, oh, we did the 7D together. Oh, that's right, 7D, okay. Yes. Anyway, that's about it for now. There's a, he's leaving out a bunch of things. Um, I started out writing ABC weekend specials, and then I wrote a lot of the CBS story breaks. I wrote Richie Rich for a while, I wrote Scooby-Doo, I wrote a bunch of primetime Yogi Bear specials for Hanna-Barbera. Uh, for Ruby Spears, I wrote Plastic Man, Thunder the Barbarian, <laughs> Um, oh boy. For Filmation, I wrote the pilot for Black Star, wow. which I took my name off of and renounced, and they rewrote me completely after that. After CBS bought it, CBS bought the show, said, this is great, and then Lou Scheimer changed everything about that show, and I disowned it. Um, and I did the same thing later with The Littles, and I almost did the same thing with The Wuzzles, and <laughs> I did the Dungeons & Dragons show, but most of the last many, many years. I've been the main writer, producer, and voice director of Garfield and Friends and the Garfield Show. Um, we did 121 half hours of Garfield and Friends, and I wrote 121 of them. Wow. wow. So, anyway. Um, as you can see, we've done a lot of stuff in animation, and I want to start by just asking Paul and Tom to tell us what's so great about animation that isn't great about live action, writing live action things. What... <coughs> Apart from the fact that you can, you know, have a giant gorilla for the same price as having a guy walk across the screen. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing I like about animation is you can, basically, if, if it's going to be 2D animation, you can write just about anything, uh, unless the, the studio has told you you have to stay away from things. But you, your your budget is is whatever's in your head. Uh, it could be very big. I mean. You, you don't want to have to make your animators animate 1,000 horses galloping across the beach, but uh, you can, they can fake it, they can fake it. But you can't afford that in live action. Um, also, in animation, I, I've always been uh, one who, who encourages everyone to write what you see and what you hear in, in your script, very concrete. That's all the reader needs to know. What are you seeing and what are you hearing? So when, uh, when we get to the, the script writing uh, job, uh, there's no reason to give your like, moods, opinions. You, you just 
describe what the character's feeling and, and, and seeing and, uh, yeah, so. Huh. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll answer that question with, uh, with just a follow-up with what Tom said, because uh, really, I'd never thought about writing animation. I wrote a bunch of sketches uh, that we would be put up on Saturdays uh, at an Acme Theater in North Hollywood, and that's where Tom came to see me uh, and another guy and offered us jobs. But my first Animaniac strip ever, um, Sherry Stoner was our uh, story editor, and she, she said, uh, and I thought, oh, I would just write it like a sketch. And, and, and she said, no, you have to tell me where the camera is. You have to tell me where the camera is at all times. And I was like, I can't, I, I'm kind of a stupid comedy writer. I don't know how that's done. And she said, but you have to, because that's what Tom Ruger wants. Camera, at wide on Yakko, pull out. Uh, camera pans over to Dot. And I was like, I'll never get this. I'll never uh, understand it. And what I, never, what I now know, and this kind of answers the question, is I had total control of the joke at all times. When you write like that, what, what Tom said, what does the camera see? He doesn't see Yakko and Wacko over here setting up for the next joke. The camera must be on scratch and sniff in order for this joke to pay off. And, and I remember I had a problem with doors. I was like, Beethoven comes in through a door. And I was like, where does the camera go? Um, but it was, in, and, and it was so hard to figure out. But once I kind of figured that out, I was in control of my joke. And then from that, it would go to a storyboard artist. And they would go, like, storyboard artist is great. But it's like, as a writer, I'm telling you what the joke is. The joke is right here. It's not over there with a flying sausage. It's right here. And I was able to do that. And unfortunately, maybe we'll get into it, but they don't really let you do that anymore. But I would encourage you all, before I leave, and they drag me off of this room with my claws digging into this thing, is do it that way for yourselves. Learn how to tell a story visually. Like Tom said, I'm going to shut up. No, but it, it, the punchline, I've, I've seen cartoons, and I've seen scripts where they, the, the camera doesn't stay on the character who's delivering the punchline. And I don't know if you've ever seen an off-camera punchline before, it, it, it dies. It's just like, ugh. So, yeah. But Paul was particularly uh, talented at making it a very visual, and you know, he would tell the camera where to be, and the storyboard artist, you know, did tremendous jobs, and, and the cartoons, as you know, the Animaniacs cartoons were, were very successful in delivering the comedy. And following up on that, what Paul was talking about, one of the nice things I discovered, I wrote a lot of live action TV shows for a while, variety shows and situation comedies, and in those you wrote, controlled the joke up until the time it got to an actor who thought he could improve on the joke or didn't like the joke, and what happens in cartoons is that Frank Welker reads the joke you wrote, and, <laughs> and whoever the voice people are, they sometimes have ideas on how to improve things, they sometimes have great new delivery, the best people, uh, are creative with the work, but they understand that their job there is to read that line that is on the page. Uh, I don't know if you ever had this experience. I was auditioning actors one time for a, uh, a cartoon show I did called uh, Channel Empty 3. And is there a human being in this room who ever heard of Channel Empty 3? Okay, three of us, thank you. <laughs> it was actually on the WB yes, for, it was. for a whole season, anyway. Rob Paulson was the star voice of it. And, uh, we were, before we found Rob, an actor came in, 
and he starts reading the edition copy, and he starts changing all the words, changing it all around. And, diff and, and I stopped and I said, I think you should know if you're going to do this that I wrote that audition <laughs> and I'm writing the show. And he said, I don't care. And I said, well, I'd like you to hear you do what I wrote. He said, if I get the job, I'm not going to do what you wrote. I'm going to do what I wrote. I can ad lib better than any writer who's ever written for cartoons in my life. There you go. Wow. I said, well, you're not going to do it on this show. Thank you very much. <laughs> Don't think that guy's gotten any more work. Yeah. Since then. That is the rarity. Usually they come in and they they take it as an assignment to take the copy you wrote and to find a clever way to read, to read it. Somebody once said that the difference between an American actor and a British actor is that if an American actor does not know how to read the line you wrote, he will want it changed. A British actor will take it as a personal challenge to figure out a way to read it. Animation voice people are more like uh, the British actors. And tomorrow, by the way, we've got a panel I'm hosting with a bunch of cartoon voice actors, and they will tell you that, and I let them screw up completely a script and they live all through it anyway. Um, let me just add that. Uh, the, the, um, oh, no, you go. No, no, no. Uh, no, I've lost it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Must have been very important. No, no, it wasn't very important. One of the other things that you need to do when you're doing the kind of reporting that Paul was talking about is you have to keep the action moving. There's nothing more boring than characters standing in a one room delivering exposition. Even, no matter whether you have wonderful animation, it's still people just standing around talking. There is an apocryphal story. I know this did not happen. The story is that Woody Allen was once asked to write an episode of The Flintstones, and he wrote an entire episode that took place in one room because he was copying the Honeymooners show that Jackie Gleason did, which basically took place in one room. So he just had Fred and Barney standing there talking, saying very funny things when they were standing there talking. Now that did not happen, but a lot of live action writers who have tried to write animation or people who fought like live action writers uh, have done that. And what you've got to do is keep moving the thing. If the characters are saying, let's go someplace, they don't say, let's go someplace and then move. They're running as they say, let's go someplace. And you keep cutting into scenes fast, and you move along, because you've got to keep giving us interesting visuals to draw and give the artist something fun to draw that they can be creative with. Um, Jump in now. So the story editor, uh, it, for those of you who want to get into the writing gig, uh, really, um, the, the person you're probably going to be contacting with the most, if you get it, assignment is going to be with that story editor who might be the producer or showrunner but what you want to do is rather than do please anyone else you want to please that person because that's your contact that's the person that's going to give you your next assignment so I have found that if you really know how to format your script so that it looks almost identical not, not the same words but it looks just like a script that that story editor wrote you're now really digging into who that person is and how he or she writes their scripts so that they will feel like, oh, you're, you're a brethren, you're, you're, you're one of us, that you're doing it the way we want you to do it. Now, the script, if the script isn't great or funny, it's, you know, it's not going to be great for you, but they're going to say, well, here's someone that really knows how to do our format, which is really important, and... Uh, and I, while we're on that, uh, you know, not everyone is meant to make funny cartoons. I mean, these guys are. They're, they're, they're funny uh, cartoon people. Um, 
sometimes uh, just being funny isn't a natural thing, but there are a lot of, as you know, a lot of action cartoons that you, know, you don't have to be funny, you just have to be very dramatic. And as Paul said before, you want to be very visual in your descriptions in those scripts. And if you look at, a, at an animation script, they're not hard to find, they're all over the internet. Um, take a look at how much, uh, how long a speech is. Your, your script, you should be able to hold your script at arm's length and hold the produced script at arm's length and look, they have roughly the same amount of description, the same amount of dialogue. The dialogue is broken up with, with you, you know, you can even have one character have three or four speeches in a row, but there should be some sort of description of cutting to a different shot, having the character do something, or cutting to a different location, and such. Also, keep in mind that one of your number one duties is to describe the characters for the actors, for the artists, rather. Somebody's got to draw what you wrote, and the more you tell them information, the closer you're going to come to having what gets on the screen be what you had in mind. And so you have to, you know, and, and not over, and, and there's such a thing as too much description, too. You don't want to hand these people in and say the character is six foot four and he's got a green, you know, nose or something. You want to give them, tell them the important things that are important to the story. Now, gentlemen, um, tell me the moment you were, you guys worked on some shows that had enormously popular, funny episodes that people saw over and over again and, and loved them and just, just adore some of those episodes. Tell me one episode that, that if we had to show it now, which we're not doing, that you're proudest of, of some show you did. Well, I'm, I'm proud of all the Animaniacs shows. Uh, Tiny Toons uh, is a little spottier for me, but there's one Tiny Toons episode that uh, I point out to being uh, a favorite because it is so insanely violent. <laughs> and uh, and I'll, I'll tell you about the script writing process of this. I, I assigned this story, I said, here's the premise. And this is another thing uh, that I'm sure Mark and Paul can share with, that sometimes an, uh, every story, every assignment probably has the germ of a pretty good idea that starts it off, that, oh, this would be a good, unique cartoon with this one germ of an idea that maybe we haven't seen before. and. Uh, and I think we've all find, found that sometimes those ideas are like telephone, where the writer starts writing it, and, and maybe someone else starts getting involved in the storyboard, and it turns into telephone in that by the end of the, the process, the cartoon isn't anything like that original germ of an idea. So that's, what, that's one of the things I really try to avoid, having those ideas just sort of dissipate in the wind. So this idea that was I handed out was, it's the Anvil Chorus, and Plucky Duck gets crushed by anvils. So that's, that's the premise of the cartoon. We're gonna play the Anvil Chorus, and so, no one believed me that that's really what I wanted to see in this cartoon. So I think we had seven different writers take a shot at this, and every writer, for some reason, avoided like an anvil hitting anyone until like the seventh minute of the cartoon. I said, no, 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 we, we want anvils from minute one and, and hit them for six, seven minutes. And, and uh, anyway, I, I, we finally, you know, I, I managed to get it story edited uh, to a, a point where uh, it had a few extra jokes, but it really was plucky just getting annihilated by anvils. And, it, it makes me very proud. <laughs> well, um, gosh, uh, for Animaniacs, 
it was a, a, probably a script I wrote called uh, Hearts of Twilight, which was a parody of, um, of uh, the Francis Ford Coppola's wife's movie about the making of Apocalypse Now, which is not your general kid's fair. But, um, you know, he, he, here's the thing. So working with someone like Tom, um, you know, I went in and I said, I want to do, and by the way, this is how, I'm going to tell you how it should work and how it doesn't work anymore. Here's how it should work. Um, you go into Tom and you say, Tom, I want to have them, uh, I want to have them do, uh, do go upriver and try to kill a director uh, at Warner Brothers. And Tom says, that's weird, go. Uh, and I go and I do it. Uh, and that's as much as involvement as Tom, as the producer's story, that has at that moment. Now it's up to me over the next week and a half, and we, we had a week and a half to, for me to like, oh, what does that mean? And I would struggle and cry. And by the way, so here's the other thing I want to tell you, that they won't tell you. It's very hard, and it's sad, and there are lonely moments, and you can't figure out that angle, and you can't figure out that joke, and that's how it's supposed to feel. For me, anyway. It's not like everything you write is like, oh, this is wonderful, it's all wonderful. Um, you're going to have very bad like moments where that line didn't come, but you know that line needed to work and it doesn't work. Anyway, so I wrote this thing and, and I turned it into Tom and uh, he looked at it and he said, this is not good. <laughs> In fact, I pretty much hate it. And I was like, well, what's wrong? And he pointed out to me, no, no, you were going to do this, but you, you got scared and you didn't do this. So I went back in, and in like two days, I wrote what I set out to write, which was they go up the river and, and they kill the director, sort of thing. Um, and so my point is, is why would I, why, that's such a dumb idea, but, but animation is about those ideas. It's not about any, and I'm, I'm going to be really popular, but there are no rules. There are no rules. There are rules, like, yeah, you know, you, you have to keep it moving and stuff, but beyond that, it's, it, and you have to know the story you're writing. You have to know the characters you're writing. You have to love the characters. I loved Yakko, Wacko, and Doc. I helped like breathe life into them, but I knew them. And I can only write things that I know. So whatever you guys write, you need to love them. And you need to know them. I'm done. No, but he, he really channels uh, the Yakko, Wacko, and Doc. I mean, it, it's a very comfortable place for you to be living and writing in. But Paul also... Excuse me, but Paul also would uh, really go through agony. I mean, he'd have a, a week and a half. What we ever, ever give you two weeks? Maybe we give him two weeks. Yeah, so a week and a half is over. It's Wednesday, and how's it going, Paul? I haven't started yet. <laughs> but he's been pacing up and down the halls for like eight days, and uh, no, I can't get. He's, but. It really, it's the start that it is. So, oh yeah, so there's the other thing, the stuff. But first of all, in animation, you don't have a lot of time. You have, I mean, 11 pages or 13 pages, whatever. You gotta get to it. There's no like, the moon was full and <laughs> Margaret was languishing daintily upon, no, it's like, you gotta go. So um, I always found that the first page, I would rewrite it five days for five days, because like the joke, something didn't happen, something wasn't working, I hadn't set it up properly. And it occurs to me now, and well, various people told me this is what was happening, but I don't really trust them, that my brain was figuring it out. It was figuring it out, so that by day five, I could write 11 pages in eight, eight hours, because I had spent all that, all that pain. Anyway, that's my process. It shouldn't be yours, because it will make you sad. <laughs> but, Think about it. 
Uh, I'll just throw in one other thing. When you're writing a script, say it's a comedy, and you know you need a really great joke right here, and you don't quite have it, it's okay for you to say, okay, I'm gonna put a placeholder here, uh, or you know, I can't leave a blank, but I'm gonna put a placeholder joke here that isn't very good, and but I'm gonna come back. And then you get to the end of the script and you're exhausted and your due date is tomorrow and you don't go back and fix that placeholder thing. Don't do that, don't do that. You gotta, you gotta go back and put the good joke in there before you hand it in because uh, placeholder jokes are invariably stale cliches from the past. Yeah, so that's the other thing you say. I could never do that. I would get stuck until, that, until I figured out that joke and then I would move on. But that's just, that's in comedy the way I am. But the other thing too is, is don't write what you've seen before, mm. ever. Write a new thing, and I know you're like, wait, what, what do you mean? I mean, it's like, no, that, you, you don't take those turns that everyone that you've seen a million times, um, and that's why this is hard. It, it's not, it shouldn't just be like, oh, this is, this is great. You're trying to write something no one's ever seen before. Um, uh, but, you know, obviously we've seen it, but it's gotta be your version of it. And not everything you write, trust me, because I'm, I, Oh boy, I've been there. Not everything you write is gold. You gotta, you gotta sift through the chaff, the wheat. <laughs> Never mind. Some of that's done. Um, I worked uh, for a studio once where if you put in one of those placeholder jokes and it stayed in the script, they would think that was the highlight of the episode. <laughs> uh, they would, they would just, they would love that. Why, why can't that be a running gag? <laughs> um, the episode I wrote that I was proudest of, I did a. For several years, I was the guy who produced, I did this for all three of the major networks, the primetime special that ran the night or two before <laughs> the new Saturday morning schedule and previewed the show. Somebody remember some of them, they used to do those things. I did like three of those for CBS, and two of them for NBC, four of them for ABC. And so we would get the, the shows literally Thursday night, the, the studios would deliver the first episode that aired on Saturday. They're delivering it deliberately to the network at the last minute so the network cannot ask for anything to be redone. And I would get the episodes and I would have to watch an episode of some new show debuting. Uh, and uh, uh, I was, and I saw for the network did. The people at the network are phoning me saying, have you got the episode of this yet? How is it? <laughs> so I had to sit through an episode of a show called The Get Along Gang. And I probably had the springtime for Hitler look on my face during it. And I had had struggles on a show I did called Dungeons and Dragons, where the standards and practice of people were urging us to sell the idea that the group is always right. If you have a bunch of your friends all want to go to the amusement park, then you should go to the amusement park. You shouldn't be a troublemaker and say, I want to do something else. And I didn't think this was a very good lesson to be teaching kids. We're teaching kids to, to join gangs and go along with the majority. <laughs> so I wrote a thing for, the, for Garfield called The Buddy Bears, which were these obnoxious little characters who agree with everybody. And then they would drop, uh, they did drop handles on them, they dropped 16-ton uh, safes on them, which is another good comment. I like that. So that was my favorite thing because it reflected a viewpoint that actually bugged me. And some of the best episodes, I'm sure you've had this experience, come out of you right here about something that pisses you off. <laughs> and just getting some revenge by, with the cartoon. Yeah, we did a thing uh, in Animaniacs with Reed Hunt, who was the FC, uh, FCC commissioner, and he was making everything be educational. And so we had a fellow named Reef Blunt, who was up there in, in this situation. And, 
Yakko, Wacko, Dot, Slappy, Squirrel, Skippy, and some other characters are down there, and he's telling them, there's going to be educational TV, and, uh, and <laughs> I think Slappy says, we're doomed. And, uh, yeah. yeah. You, you, one of the problems that we used to have a lot of, which has lessened over the years, is dealing with standards and practices. You didn't have standards and practices problems on the most of the shows, right? Well, Animania, well, we did, at Hanna-Barbera we had a lot. Yes, Hanna-Barbera we had tons of it. Yeah. And there was one lady in standards and practices at ABC who thought she was on a holy mission to save uh, the world from, from us. She was the lady who cut, CBS had the Bugs Bunny cartoons for years, and when ABC stole them away, she took great pride in cutting them further. Uh, CBS cut out most of the humor in them, and she was very proud that she had cut out the rest of it. <laughs> Literally, she would brag about, they let this joke in, I wouldn't let that joke on ABC. And I fought with her on a, a, what a we went to the mat once on an episode of Richie Rich, where I had an episode which was about an old guard who was guarding Rich, you know, Richie Rich had, you know, more money than fill in the name of annoying billionaire these days. And um, there was an old guard who was about to be retired, and the new guards who were coming in were using all this high-tech electrical equipment and tight tech things to, and, and security guards had changed over the years, and Pops, whatever we called him, was out of date, and they kind of made fun of him being old-fashioned. And then at the end of the episode, the thief has managed to, to completely neutralize all the high-tech, new high-tech stuff, and it's Pops that saves the day. It's like, you know, you know, you shouldn't not, you don't, you should learn to add, even if you have a calculator. Your calculator might go out. <laughs> Your brain probably won't, if you're lucky. So she read this script, and she said, you've got to take out the part where they make fun of the old guy. That's imitatable action. And I said, well, there's no script if the, if the, if the, if the guys aren't proven wrong. It's like, take, you know, it's like if the episode's about the, the hero catching the bank robbers, you want me to take out the part where they rob the bank. And he says, yeah. She said, yeah, I, I don't, you, know, you shouldn't show the people robbing a bank. And we fought on this, and I actually threatened to deliver no, no episode to ABC that week, and we fought, and we fought, and we fought, and I won the battle, and then Bill Hanna cut the thing out anyway. <laughs> because well, that's what I, I want to tell you this one little story. Uh, Mark did a bunch of those ABC, uh, like, uh, premiere, Saturday morning premiere shows. I did one, and yeah, it was appropriate after one. And this is my, this is literally my one experience in live action. I've, I've been mainly in animation. And it was called the ABC Sneak Fun Fitness Test, starring Mary Lou Retton doing somersaults and Tony Danza as the host, and they showed clips of the shows coming up Saturday morning. So I wrote this, I think it was a 45-page script, or maybe, maybe yeah, 40, it was long, it, it was a pretty long script, and the, the director, the live-action director said, oh, this is way too long, and he cut uh, 20, 25 pages out of it. I said, you're going to come up short. And he said, no, 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 you don't know what you're doing, you know, live-action. So, uh, there they are, they're making this ABC uh, sneak peek fun fitness test all day, and uh, Tony Danza, and it's done, they, they finished it, and it's like four o'clock uh, in the afternoon on a Friday, and Tony Danza's like getting his clothes on, he's ready to go to Palm Springs. And the director goes, stop! And uh, they're, they're 15 minutes short, it's a half hour show. <laughs> So they, 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 
I'm, I'm there, but they're like, where's Ruger Cop? Find him. And so I, I happened to be there, and I said, oh, yeah? And they said, we need, we need 15 minutes. So I just brought out the original script. I said, how about, here you go. Oh, okay. Well, the problem was, Tony Danza really was ready to go. And uh, this, if, if we had video of Tony Danza that afternoon, it would be one of the most famous clips of all time on, on Facebook because he blew a gasket. He blew every gasket in his head. I've never heard the, the words coming out of his face. And it went on for an hour. <laughs> Finally, they were like throwing money at him. Please stay, finish the show. And he did. Um, I'm going to throw this open to questions from the floor. If you have a question that is not specific to your career, that everybody, that everybody can profit from, put up your hand. We'll call on somebody over here. Yes. Um, advice on how to get into writing animation. Uh, in my case, it was very strange because I was first hired by Hanna-Barbera for live action, because I was writing TV shows, and I think I'd just come off writing Welcome Back, Cotter, or something like Love Boat. And um, I was the editor of the Hanna-Barbera comic book department, also at the same time. And they were taking my comic books and adapting them into episodes of the shows. And I said, why don't you let me do that? And they said, well, no, you're a live action writer. You can't do that. And I, I, I literally you know, said to Joe Barbera, um, uh, I can. Uh, uh, I know your cartoons real well. I could do this. And he said, oh, yeah? What's Willow Flintstone's maiden name? I said, Swagoople. He said, I think that's right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so I went to work for, uh, I got, went to work for Sid and Marty Croft writing one of their Saturday morning live action shows. And the producer of that show said, you should be writing cartoons. And she called uh, Joe Ruby at the Ruby Spears studio and said, I got a writer for you. If you are writing other things, that doesn't hurt you most of the time. Doing work that people are happy with will open doors for you. In my case, I, I, I went from being basically exclusively a live action writer to being mostly an animation writer. And that was just a connection. And you make connections like that. Tom, Tom kind of got, got in by working in other parts of the building. So I started in the animation department and then there were laying everybody off, sending things overseas. So I, in desperation, wrote a spec script, which I think is another good way to go, uh, whether it's a, a spec script of a show that exists that you know that the people you're sending it to like and, or, or make uh, to show that you understand what they're doing. Uh, that's very helpful. Um, uh, the more people you know in the business that have work in the business, uh, that can help. Um, writing your own story, your own script with new characters is another, you know, it's valid. Uh, they may have trouble understanding it, but if it's, if it's well-written and funny, that can help. One of the things you've got to remember is that there's a big lead time in animation. The shows are produced way before you see them. And sometimes you'll see a new show that's on the air, and you go, this is great, I'd love to write for this. And you don't know that that show has already bought all the script it's going to buy. It's already finished its, its commitment. They, they, and, such. and some shows are just not open for for uh, submissions whatsoever. But if you write something that's good with people re recognize, if you, right now, if you, wrote, if you could write a Scooby-Doo these days that does something that's, that is valid for those characters, but nobody's ever done it before, uh, uh, that helped. The first time I sold a Scooby-Doo script, 
uh, I walked into the story editor's office. I was writing something else for Hannah Barbera at the time, and I said, um, there's a baseball, uh, haunted baseball park that ghost baseball players are on the field. That's all I had. But the guy went through a list of like, usually they go, oh, we did that in season two. We did that in season four. In this case, they went, we've never done that before. So I had a sale because I had come up with the hard part, something that Scooby hadn't done before, and everything else could be worked out after that. So what ideally you want is to find a show that's open, that is ongoing, and you want to come up with something that is internal, using those characters, not bringing in somebody's uncle, because it's easier to generate something brand new by bringing in a whole new character. If you can write something, you know, if you watch the old episodes of MASH, look at how many episodes of MASH do not involve guest stars. They don't, they're, they're, it's a new story of Radar, it's a new story of Hotlift, it's a new story of Klinger. If you can do that with existing characters, that's very helpful. Paul, you started talking about how you got in, you were writing comedy sketches. Yeah, I mean, are, are you writing now? Is that, are you writing stuff now? Yeah, no, so, so keep doing that. Do, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, like um, they, we're talking about the specifics of, of how writing is different than animation or live action stuff, but it's all writing. So you have to be ready to when you do see that animation thing that you want to go, go for, that, you, that you're trained and ready to write. So, because um, a, lot, a lot of people are like, well, how do I do that? And I'm like, well, do you write? And they go, oh, no, I don't really write now. And it's like, well, so what you got to do is write. Um, that's, that's my answer to you. Just write, write stuff. Don't, don't be the person who says, I'll write when somebody's going to pay me to do it. You, I have been a professional writer now since 1969. I've really never done anything else. Yeah. I've never been out of work. But I've done a lot of different kinds of writing, and sometimes they see you write one thing and they think, oh, I bet he could write that. Yeah, you know, I'll just, uh, when, when I was doing the sketch comedy, it was at a place where we had to pay $75 a month in order to perform. I mean, and I'm, Hollywood's full, full of that, right? And it was like, and... You know, and we were performing sometimes for four people. One of them was, you know, Adam Krola's parents, because uh, Adam Krola was in the group at the time. And um, uh, you weren't being paid to write. No, 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 no. We were paying to write. I was. I mean, we were like, but it's what you do, and it was fun and exciting, and and but. Uh, yeah, you can't wait for that moment for someone to be like, here's a million dollars, because um, I would pay seven five dollars a month to write. Stupid things. So yeah. That, so I saw him at this club where he was uh, doing um, Manny the Uncanny. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen him do this bit. And basically, the audience would be laughing at his antics, and they would say, and he would yell at them to shut. Up. <laughs> yeah, I did. And, and it turns out when you tell an audience to shut up, they just keep laughing. <laughs> and you go, shut up? And they go, <laughs> and I go, oh, no, really, shut up. And then they keep laughing. And that went on for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and I think that, that alone, I was, I was just, uh, I was on the floor. So uh, when, when Animaniacs came along, uh, Paul and John McCann were given the first assignments outside of the building. And, uh, and the day that those scripts came in, Sherry Stoner, the story editor, and I read them and we were laughing. It's like, we, we didn't even know that the show worked at that point. We didn't know that Yakko, Wacko, and Dot were going to be a successful trio. We provided a bunch of like Bible quote material for, to John and Paul, but they made them like, well, they're alive on the page. Yeah, so yeah, so, yeah they, 
that was the first script I ever did. Was was it was Beethoven? I remember it was yeah. the, the Warner Brothers, and there was all this stuff that they said they're kind of like this, they're kind of like that, they're kind of like that. But what I really latched onto, and what helped me when I was able to write, was like they're the Marx Brothers. I don't know if you guys know who the Marx Brothers is, but it's like, and it's like once I understood that because I was a huge Marx Brothers fan. It was like, and that's why when I talked about loving your characters, knowing your characters, like you know what they're gonna do. Um, that's how I was able to write it, because like, I understood them and I knew them. I didn't understand how to get Dick Beethoven through a door and where my camera should be. <laughs> uh, that really hurt my head for like three days. But, but um, yeah, like, uh, loving to write, loving your characters, adoring them and stuff. Uh, like, I loved Wacko. He was like my favorite character because he was so fun and simple and, and I knew that he represented so much of what an Animaniacs was. So, um, and going for the range of jokes, Paul put in you know, every kind of joke all the way up to you know, where uh, you know, he calls himself a pianist and the, the kids, the Yakawaka and are like, a what? You know, a pianist. And they, a they want pianist. To, you potty mouth, you know, and they want to watch his mouth. Yeah. But 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 uh, but yeah, you have to uh, you have to experiment. You have to go. You have to write, but you have to write, 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 write. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the people who are walking in who are coming get seats for the new pa next panel. What what's the next panel about? We're just waiting for you. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yes. Um, have you seen that, <laughs> yes, I have, I've experienced that, yes. Um, another question from the floor here. Gentleman right here on this side. You, you, yes. So, in the industry, things have changed from the time that you have started writing. <laughs> and uh, the characters and iterations that you have made have vastly changed in their new iterations that there are now. Uh, what are some of the challenges that have, uh, the students that you have before that are no longer allowed um, in the new Follow yeah, yeah, well, uh, see, back in, in 93, 97, we, uh, the shows were, uh, we're making shows for kind of a general audience. Uh, now with cable and streaming, uh, it's very niche audience oriented uh, cartoon show. So a lot of the shows are for, you know, uh, ages two to four, or, you know, girls seven to nine. Um, so our shows were uh, kind of for, for everyone. Um, uh, does that make sense? Well, yeah. Well, the, the big, the biggest difference is the 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 idea that uh, that you are simply the writer to sort of germinate the idea, and then it'll go to Phil and Mary and and Clive, and and the, and then it'll go to more people and more people and more pe people. It has become a note-driven, like I I, I I wrote something once, and the notes were longer than the script. <laughs> and I was like, why? And it was like, and it came from, you know, Phil and accounting and, and Betty <laughs> and marketing. And it was like, and when we worked, when I did Animaniacs and Freak Zone, which is why I say I sort of started at that place where it was a magical little time, where Steven Spielberg exec is your executive producer, and he's just like, this is great. <laughs> and you're like, okay, okay, you guys are right more of that. That's fun. And, um, when Warner Brothers would come and be like, well, we have a, well, Stephen likes it, we like it too. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Everything's good. We're all good in this room, aren't we? Aren't we all fine? So, so there was a freedom and, 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 and trust. And the other thing was, we didn't have a writer's room. No. We had, like, we would go into pitch to Tom, and, and 
he'd go do that, do that, and, and but we all had uh, our offices uh, like on the same floor, right next to each other, and we became our own writer's room in that we would filter in going, I'm having a real problem with this joke, and we would sort of work on it. But the idea of a writer's room, where you get a bunch of people around a room, uh, in my opinion, in, especially back then, maybe it's different now, I, I've never done well in it, but, but you lose control of your joke and it, it, and it sort of falters down and it goes over, over, over there. At least you get your idea out in one pass, you give it to the producer and he might go, this is not, not great. So I think these days you guys do have to sort of filter through a writer's room and figure out what that's like and, and, um, and also the note process. Uh, the, the biggest difference, I don't mean to take them in time, but it's like, what's your idea? My idea is that they go and meet Beethoven. It's one line, right? And then from there, they, they would just be, you'd be done. But nowadays it's like, great, that's, we call that a slug line. Now we want to know, what is the premise? Uh, what does that mean? So now turn that idea into a paragraph. And then you write a paragraph. It's like a hero's journey for every seven minute cartoon. And they're like, great, so, so now what? And now we'd like an outline. And then that's like four pages. And the worst it's pretty thing much, to ever be assigned is the outline. But the problem with the outline is, from a freedom point of view, and again, I'm old and I don't care anymore, but I will just tell you <laughs> that, that when you write the outline, discovery is gone. Like, I cannot tell you how many episodes I wrote where on page four, Yakko or Wacko or Freakazoid said something, and I went, oh, that's what the episode is. It's not what I told Tom. I'm not going to go back in a room and tell him that was not what I meant. So I would just write what, what happened. And it took a left turn. And I wrote so many Animaniacs that is like, that's not what I expected to write. But the characters start talking and you go like, oh, oh, hey, I, I, you know, so. But the outline takes that out of your hand. It the just becomes at that time, it's like, well, I said, yeah, they're going to walk in there. Okay, so they walk in there. And it's boring and horrible. But anyway, but that's the way it's done. So you have to make peace with it and find some way to have fun with that, right? I don't know. Yeah, you know, you find that there's a much wider variety of animation styles these days. There's a much wider variety of places to work for and a most, much wider variety of situations. When I was starting working for Hanna-Barbera and Ruby Spears and Filmation and those studios, it was kind of the same game at every studio. And they, they, the references were usually what's the hit at the moment. You know, this, this story will work because it's kind of like Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo's got high ratings and such. And now, you're po more, many more things are possible, including different work situations. Um, I did 121 half hours of Garfield. I did 200 of the Garfield show. We never did outlines. Yay. We never had approvals. We just wrote it and recorded it. And the network never saw anything before we had finished the episode. We just gave them. And then, you know, the biggest note we got was, don't do any more like that, but you know, fine. And everything that got on the air was what we wanted, pretty much. And we had no problems with standards and practices. You, you, you live for, for those great moments when you can find those situations. You don't have them very often. Uh, I, I reached a point, at one point in my career, when I wasn't, uh, didn't want to work for any of the existing studios, because I'd sued two of them, <laughs> and the other ones I should have. Uh, and, uh, then all of a sudden, I got offered the Garfield show, and I, and they let, they let me do whatever I wanted, and it was, it worked out fine. Um, you know, if you have a hit, they'll let you do just about anything you want. But you got to get to the point where you're proven to be a hit. Yeah. You. The, but again, guys, it's like if you want to write and stuff, go, go write. 
go write and write and write and, and write things and then you'll reach a point and you'll hand it in. But don't don't internally edit anything. Just go with go with the vision, go with the thing and watch weird things will happen. Sometimes you'll write poopy things and it won't be good, but sometimes you'll write like brilliant things. So and that's where the the importance of a brilliant story editor, the importance of, of, of really great friends and writers that you're all on this journey to, together. I've worked with some executives where you're, you're like, I mean, I don't even know if you can tie your shoes. Um, and they're not very smart. Um, not all networks executives are brilliant. And um, so I don't really like the poopy fence. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but when we were writing on Animex, sometimes we get notes from like higher up, very, very, very rarely. And, and I would take them seriously and Tom would say, don't do it, they'll never know. Um, and we did that a lot. There's like, we, oh my gosh, we, we have so much stuff that we never did that they said don't do it, and we just did it anyway. And they, they never knew, they even asked that not be done. Find stupid executives and you'll be fine. Uh, another question right here. Come to me, I got the extra pages. No, no, if you're over. Oh, you're if you can't hit your show in that time. You have a problem. Oh, you want to hit, hit, I'll tell you I'll tell you what it happened, what it is. I worked on this show called well, remember Welcome Back Cotter with John Trump. Yeah. I worked on that. We would do a um, dress rehearsal taping. We would we have regular live audience, we do a dress rehearsal, then we had two hours, they brought in the final audience, and we did the episode again. And at one point, um, we were seven minutes over. We did the episode, we were seven minutes over, and what you do is you say, okay, kill your babies. You, got, you have to cut seven pages. I taught comedy writing at USC for a while, and one of my assignments they gave, I passed out to uh, the class, copies, Xerox copies, of the script of the play The Odd Couple by Neil Simon, which is about the most perfect comedy ever written for the stage. And I said, okay, now read this over. Now your assignment is, um, we got half an hour here. In half an hour, I want you to cut 30 pages out of this. Go. Wow. All right? You, there's no point to argue. You have to go cut. You have to just put a bag over your head and just start cutting stuff you know is wonderful that you love, but it has to come out. And it's a reality of the business that everyone at some point should be in that situation. I wrote a live show. It was one of those award shows. And I, while we're, we are broadcasting on the air live, I am cutting the rest of the script out because it, it, it has to be very fast. One time that we were on the show, uh, Lauren Green, remember Lauren Green from Bonanza? He was one of our presenters. And he calls me, and we're, we're on the air live. The show is, is going on, it's a People's Choice Award, something like that. And they call me, Lauren Green wants to see you in the dressing room. And I run back to the restroom, and Lauren Green says he's not gonna do the spot. He doesn't like the spot that we rehearsed already. He was fine with it beforehand, but he doesn't want it now. And he said, I'm not going to do it. Give me a new script. And I turned to the stage manager who was with me. And I said, when does he go on? And he says, 20 minutes. So I said, okay, I've got to write something new for you, but I don't have time to rewrite it. He said, fine. I ran out. I grabbed the cue cards, blank cue cards, and wrote the sketch on the cue, the bit on the cue cards. Took it to him. He read it. Once he said, fine. We ran to the booth. I told the director, uh, Every, all the Lauren Green copy has changed now. He says, give me a copy of it. I said, there isn't one. It's on the cue cards. <laughs> kill, kill the prompter, the teleprompter. And Lauren Green read that thing off the cards, and I'm standing by the director saying, 
Cut to a wider shot for the next, for the next bit. Cut to the, cut real close to the curtain. And we went on the air like that. You should have that experience in some way in television or writing at some point where you have to do it like that. Lady over there. That's called the Rocky and Bullwinkle syndrome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everybody here is, if you want to watch, if, listen, if you want to write cartoons, you've got to watch cartoons. And if you're going to watch cartoons, you've got to watch Rocky and Bullwinkle. You've got to watch, uh, let's name some of the shows that, that we love. The, the, the shows that you remember, you should see them as an adult and see if you still like them. But all the Jay Ward shows had really sharp writing on them. The, I think the early Hanna-Barbera cartoons, Huckleberry Hound, up till about a point of up till about the point of Adam Ant or Hong Kong Fui had some really sharp writing on them. Then afterwards they went in all different directions. I'll, I'll, I'll respond to one thing about the adult thing. Uh, it's probably you know Adam Ant has been accused of having an occasional blue moment. <laughs> so uh, I just you know and there would be good night everybody Yakko you know anytime something was sort of off color. So there's this one very famous moment. Uh, where it's, I think, from Hercule Iaco. And I just want to defend our show because it really was actually an innocent thing. So we're recording the show, and Iaco uh, uh, says to Dot, you know, uh, find, find Prince, you know. And uh, he said, so she, because uh, there's a mystery, so they have to find the, the fingerprints. So, she says, I found Prince, and she pulls Prince in from a, like a porthole, and she's holding uh, the artist formerly known as Prince in, in, in her uh, arms, and, and he says, no, fingerprints. <laughs> now, that's, that's kind of, it sounds bad, but she, the, the, what, what made it, the real joke, the real laugh is what, Dot says, I don't think so. <laughs> then she throws, but that, that line wasn't in it. That was Tress literally sitting there reading the script as she's recording it, and she gets to that line, and then she finally says, I don't think so. I, I don't think we're doing this right. <laughs> and somehow we left that in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't think we were... Uh, we were not as conscious of that as, as others, but um, yeah, I think, I, I think some of it goes over uh, the kids' heads, and you know, I think if adults are paying attention, they get a laugh out of it. Yeah, ideally your show should work for its target audience and others as well. And, and, and we always have, we all have these little jokes we put in that only mean something to us. And, and every so often somebody mentions to you, you feel very proud when somebody got that joke. Yeah. Yes. So. And also, don't, don't forget, like the original Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, all those, those were done uh, during World War II. Those were shown before Casablanca. Those were all for an adult audience, right? I mean, it wasn't done specifically for, for kids. But there's a Warner Brothers that, that I learned from over the man with the hat. Um, uh, the Warner Brothers way was kind of the idea that you, you, you do a joke or a, or a show and the, the, the older teenager who's 17 laughs. 
And uh, his brother, who's 15, looks at him and is like, huh, I wonder why he's laughing. And then the 11-year-old sister is like, well, what, what's up with that? So it was like, we were sort of like saying, you gotta, you gotta figure this out for yourself, kids. And where now, a lot of shows are, we are writing this for kids, we're not going to, sh we're not going to show them anything that they're going to have to work for at all. And it's almost like the, the child could have written it themselves, right? Yeah. And that never works out, in my opinion. You always want to write above the level of the child so that there's somewhere for them to go. Discovery, right? Um, so that's, yeah. Kids are stupid, you'll find. <laughs> and I, and I know we're going to wrap this and we're going to be out in the hall probably for a little while afterwards if you have more questions. But thank you. For, I'm sorry we couldn't cover everything. It's, it's a pretty wide topic to cover. This I have a pamphlet. Okay. <laughs> thank you all for coming here. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Tom. This podcast is not endorsed by Warner Brothers or Amblin Entertainment and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Animaniacs, Tiny Toon Adventures, Freakazoid, the Warner Brothers logo, all names, pictures, and sounds are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the Animaniacast unless otherwise indicated.